0: What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Today's guest is a freedom maximalist, ex-hedge fund manager, and thought leader in the Bitcoin space. Robert has set out to answer the seemingly simple question, what is money, but in a deep and philosophical way. It's my goal on today's show to have Robert take me down the Bitcoin rabbit hole to better understand what Bitcoin and money are at a philosophical and deep level. Robert Breedlove, man, thank you so much for, for coming on the show.
1: Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So once again, you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics. This podcast is powered by BlockWorks, the fastest growing media company in the digital asset space. You can check them out at blockworks.co and you can find everything about me, my newsletter, Twitter, podcast information at thewolfofallstreets.io. So so Robert, man, let's start from the beginning. What sent you down this path to discover the, the truth behind money?
1: Well, I... Suppose, like everyone else, it's a tool that I've been kind of forced to interact with throughout life. <laughs> um, there's the there's this old commencement uh, speech given by I forget the name of the guy. It's Robert something, but it's a really famous speech you can look up online called "This Is Water." And he, there's a, a couple of younger fish swimming past an older fish, and the older fish looks over at the two younger fish and says, "Hey, hey boys, how's the water?" And the fish just kind of nod and they keep on swimming by. And then <clears throat> the two younger fish get a little ways down and they look at each other and they go, "What's water?" So, point is like money is this thing that is all it's ubiquitous, it's all around us, we're immersed in it all the time. We think in it actually, which is interesting. Like we think in dollars, we think about dollars a lot. We're constantly performing economic calculation you know, planning, all of these things. But we very rarely stop and ask ourselves that, that seemingly simple question, what is money? And um, I guess my, what got me going into the rabbit hole is I, I sort of had a predilection for curiosity early on. I've always been an avid reader. Um, started out reading a lot of science when I was really young, mostly like astrophysics. And then as I got older, uh, you know, my father was an accountant, so I guess it's in my blood a little bit. I knew I wanted to be a businessman. I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, when I was younger, I thought that just meant sending, you know, faxes and shaking hands and carrying a suitcase. Um, but as I got a little older, I learned that, you know, accounting is the language of business. And so I, and, and economics is the study of uh, the purpose of business, if you will, like, why do we trade? economics sort of goes down that rabbit hole. So I started studying these two things really deeply. And around 2004, 2005 timeframe, I got into basically the study of central banking, which I think is the core, it's the dominant institution in the world today. It controls the largest market in the world, which is money itself. Um, And specifically the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island really took me into that rabbit hole. And seeing that that central banking is kind of this corrupt core to the modern economy, um, so that was my start down the path. And then, you know, fast forward. This was that was pre Bitcoin. Fast forward a few years later, I had heard about Bitcoin, but like many people, brushed it off initially. I'd owned a little bit in 2014, but just thought it was this, you know, magic internet money more or less. Thought it was going to be disrupted by something else. Um, And it wasn't until later, like 2016, early 17, that I started really investing heavily in the space. And I was actually um, more drawn in by the concept of smart contracts, which Nick Zabo had written about in the late nineties. And it was actually his work that really set the light bulb off for me, Um, which he uses the example of the vending machine. It's kind of this automated commercial relationship between buyers and sellers, where you're basically punching in instructions and certain um actions are carried out to facilitate a transaction my light bulb was that the entire finance industry is that it is a vending machine or a smart contract that's connecting buyers and sellers of capital. it's an intermediary it doesn't really uh, add it doesn't add any productive value other than it enhances the liquidity of exchange effectively and a lot of that function I saw stood to be disrupted by, uh, you know, at the time, what I what I called smart contracts, or, or this wave of innovation, we call crypto assets, and started allocating pretty heavily into the top market-weighted crypto assets. And I like to say where my money went, my mind followed. I actually think money and mind are very intimately connected, which we we'll can talk about a little bit later. And through that process, just went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, and really started asking that question, what is money? You know, why is gold money? What are the properties that it satisfied? What are the services that it renders to market actors to make it money? You know, it's just yellow metal. What's so special about gold? And um, in answering those questions, I've become increasingly bullish on Bitcoin as a result. Um, And, you know, started writing about it. Bitcoin kind of gave me the impetus to start sharing my my perspectives and views. And that writing has evolved into talking. I was appearing on various podcasts and media outlets. People enjoyed what I had to say. They enjoyed what I was writing. So now recently I've launched the show that I've I've named the What Is Money Show, which I think is the the key to incepting this idea. Like If you can just get people to ask themselves this question very deeply uh, and research it, you know, kind of to, to its bottom principles, I think you'll find uh, both the value proposition of, of gold and Bitcoin in the true free market.
0: It's interesting. I mean, you talk about the ubiquity of money, obviously, that it's pervasive in everything that we do, in our thoughts, in our in our actions, but I don't think most people ever contemplate that, right? But I would say that since COVID and during the global economic meltdown, that we have had a bit more of a grand awakening in your average person about the insanity of central bank policy obviously nobody can ignore the money printer going burr as people like to say in this space do you think now that your average person is actually thinking about money or do you still think that it's a very very small percentage that are actually contemplating these questions
1: you know it certainly seems like and i'm in a bit of an echo chamber i guess so it's clearly a biased perspective, but there's definitely the combination of Bitcoin number go up, which is related to COVID, which is related to the state, you know, uncertainty and doubt in the state response and the government in general, more generally, I would say, um, has people looking at this question a little more seriously. Um, Another thing I saw that was pretty popular for a while is when the central banks were running rampant, just, you know, stimulus package after stimulus package, people were wearing shirts and holding signs in these protests saying if, if they can just print dollars, then why do I pay taxes?
0: I was gonna ask you that exact question. That, that to me is the single thing that I hear most often that lets me know that people are contemplating these questions or why do I have to pay my rent if, you know, why do I have to do any of these things if they can just print the money?
1: 100%, and it's, it's getting to the heart of the matter very quickly and very simply. And this sort of feeds back into a general thesis I have about the digital age. Um, so in the transition from feudalism into the modern age, there were, so this is, I think the year 1490, there were about 10 million, 10 million books produced in total up until that point. Gutenberg printing press is invented. Over the next 10 years, another 10 million books are printed. So there's just an exponential explosion in in book production. And what this did was it collapsed the cost of information access. So, and with this collapse in the cost of information access, we had a commensurate increase in the variety and quality of thinking in the world. It just produced a lot more critical thinking, critical thinkers. Uh, It sowed the seeds for the enlightenment and the Renaissance. And in this transition, so as a technological transition, we just figured out a way to share information more quickly. It destroyed the ideological edifice of the church, which was right. the dominant institution of the age. They had a monopoly on knowledge effectively. They controlled the, the scriptoria where they controlled the production of books and what, what books were printed, the flow of ideas. And this little, you know, seemingly innocuous technological change, which too wasn't even a breakthrough in and of itself. The inventor actually pulled together a few different inventions that had already existed and compiled them into this one thing we call the printing press, similar to what Satoshi did uh, centuries later. And that little innovation broke the reality for people, right? Church was, they ruled the world. And then a hundred years later, you know, they're, they're falling apart. So I think in the digital age, we're seeing a similar type, renaissance, or um, breakthrough technologically. Because once again, with digital technology, as we're proving right now, we have collapsed the cost of information access and distribution. And so I would expect over time to see a commensurate boom in the quality and variety of thinking. And this, this people asking this question, if they can just print dollars, if they can just print dollars, why do I pay taxes? It's kind of an example of that these things get memified and they, they go viral, right? And all of a sudden, everyone is imprinted with this one idea that one person had globally overnight. Globally. So we can think of the, the free market itself is truly just a forum for the free exchange of ideas. The more freely ideas can move, the more wealth we can create, uh, the more quickly the economy can adapt to disruptions. And the more innovation we can drive effectively, because ideas can compete, recombine, um, you know, basically be tested against uh, the wants of market participants. And the digital age has just given us this radical, like almost a perfected forum for the free exchange of ideas. And so I think that that you know people joke about memes, like it's an internet meme, it's funny. It, Whatever, but I really think that um, the ideological space where these memes are being exchanged is actually going to contribute to the crumbling of the intellectual artifice of central banking, which is it's totally bogus, right? It's the great—I would argue—it's the greatest scam in human history. It is a pyramid scheme, in fact. If you really look at what it is, there, you know, these banks are arranged in tiers with the central bank at the top. And our, the money we use today, it's born of borrowing, right? The central bank is lending the money to the treasury effectively, or lending the money to lower tier banks and then lend it on down. And all of those interest payments roll up. Um, and the, the certificate itself, the US dollar, it is an uncollateralized government debt certificate, right? It used to be backed by gold now it's not backed by anything. It's really, it's backed by expected future cash flows of the taxing authority. So it's like, how much do we expect the US government to be able to impose this tax regime on future market participants? That's a promissory note on trust. trust. That's right. And Taleb calls this, this is really bad, right? This is intergenerational dispossession. So we're actually robbing those through fiat currency that don't have a voice. We're talking about Future generations, the poor, those living on fixed income, uh, the environment, by the way, because this is a it's a violation of private property rights. When, when anytime you're printing money, you're stealing private property from those depending on fiat currency as a store value. And when you violate private property rights, as Rothbard's laid out, and that's a whole other rabbit hole. This actually incentivizes. Uh, pollution and ecological damage to the environment, because people have to externalize these costs somewhere. So that's a lot maybe to unpack there, but in general, I just can't see how this central bank scam can hold up in the sunlight of the digital age. I think it's just gonna get incinerated. And I think Bitcoin is the, the tip of the spear. I
0: wanna go there in a second, but interested in something that you said about um, the free flow of information, obviously the enlightenment and the Renaissance, it's very clear. We've reached a time in the digital age when we have an endless quantity of free information, but we can't necessarily gauge the quality of that information Mm -hmm. in a way that maybe was a bit easier before, because I can certainly say when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, we had few sources, but they were vetted and trusted. Right. Mm-hmm. Generally for your information. If you were doing a research paper when I was in high school, you knew the books you were reading and taking notes from were, were accurate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So is there a flip side to that, you know, free flow of information when people can abuse it for for you know for malintent?
1: Yes, there, you know, you can't believe everything you read on the internet, right? Uh, it's certainly a jungle out there, but the, the other important point. And I tweeted this recently that you know we, we we think that words uh verbal and written communication are the primary means by which we interact but it's not actually the case like it's very important we, clearly we need language we use it every day but there's another uh less visible and even more fundamental and important communication protocol and that is the market price right that's actually what communicates the results of human action where people are actually putting their skin into the game, right? An entrepreneur is staking their reputation, capital, energy, time, uh, to make a bet on the arrangement of future market data. So they think they figured out a way to combine productive factors in a way that they can profitably satisfy a want in the future. So entrepreneurs are literally trying to predict the future uh, and, and profit in the process. And I think most, when when we, through the corruption of media of exchange money, we have broken the price signal. So now when we see an increase or a change for that matter in market price, it's almost impossible for us to disentangle whether that is a result of supply and demand fundamentals, like has it actually an expression of market actor intent and belief or is this an expression of central bank policy? Right. Is it just artificial liquidity distorting uh, this, this primary communication protocol we call the price signal? And that to me is a very underestimated perversity of reality. It's almost like if you, if you corrupt the this core media of exchange, you're actually corrupting media more generally. And I, you know, that may sound like a bit far reaching, but you could look at mainstream media companies today, like who are their shareholders? Who, who holds most of that power? Um, How has that power been consolidated over time? Because we know, again, when we're printing money, we're increasing the purchasing power and asset value of those holding assets. At the expense of those holding dollars right as a store value which is the productive economy or the poor as we said so we're actually driving a divergence between rich and poor so the rich get richer the poor get poor classic example all driven by inflation and so when the rich get richer and they own these uh you know centralized media companies Clearly, the incentives for what stories that media companies putting out change based on that ownership structure, um, and this, I think we could clean a lot of it up if we could just fix the money, right? There's the there's this this mendacity in the media, or what we call the media. I think is related to the mendacity in the media of exchange is what I'm trying to get at here, and if we can clear. <laughs> the price signal so that we can reliably know that whatever this asset is trading at is an expression of the collective intelligence of all market actors in the world. I can depend on this thing as the nearest approximation of truth that is available. And I can act on this information in a way that that best suits my own interests. All of a sudden we have firmer footing again in the marketplace and we better coordinate and organize ourselves. So I guess the general message there is prices, I would argue are even more truthful form of speech than speech. And for the same type of reasons, we discovered the importance of the freedom of speech in the 20th century. We saw that if a country is gonna become despotic or, 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 di- or there's an aspiring dictator, the first thing he's gonna do is try and silence uh, the freedom of speech. He needs to control speech and ideas first to control the, the society. I think Bitcoin in the digital age is gonna teach us a similar lesson about prices. Like not only do we need freedom of speech for a healthy and vibrant and flourishing society, but we also need freedom of economic speech, which is the price signal, which is only possible on a non-monopolized hard money standard.
0: It's official. The digital art market is going mainstream. It's been exploding this past year with over 10 million in sales in December alone and it's just getting started. There's no better time than now to diversify your holdings with art investments which have long been seen as an asset class that's consistently outperformed the S&P 500. Maker's Place is the go-to premium marketplace for purchasing rare digital artworks from the world's top creators like comic art legend, Jose Delbo, Trevor Jones, Digital Wizard Pock, artists collected by MoMA, Guggenheim, and many others. They have new artwork drops twice a week where collectors have the opportunity to add a coveted piece of rare digital art to their portfolio. Artworks from these drops have a history of selling out within seconds of release and have been reselling several months later for upwards of 10X. Collectors can subscribe for exclusive drop notifications on makersplace.com thewolf. You don't want to miss out on this action. Trust me. Guys, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that one of the most exciting use cases of crypto now is to earn yield and also to take low interest loans, especially since you earn next to nothing in your crappy legacy bank account. Nexo is leading the charge in this arena with 360 degree crypto banking services one thing that i'm really excited about that's new is that they have the nexo exchange it's a real game changer with more than 75 crypto and fiat pairs to swap between instantly without leaving the nexo wallet app and with prices fixed at order submission their smart routing system gives a best price guarantee by connecting you to multiple exchanges Now, if you're looking to park your crypto and earn yield, you can make up to 12% annual interest for doing absolutely nothing. If you're looking for a loan, they have them for as little as 5.9% APR and you don't have to sell your crypto, which we all know is a taxable event. Their credit lines are also dynamic, meaning that as the value of your crypto goes up, So does your available credit. This is so cool and innovative. I've never seen something like that before. So please check them out at nexo.io slash exchange and put your crypto to work for you. Okay, so with a weird, some might say, semi post-apocalyptic 2020, very much done and dusted. It's time to tear the new year in two and send your Bitcoin into play with a killer promo from the team at BitCasino. Drop a 5-milli-Bitcoin minimum on any of the platform's 2,000 or so Bitcoin slots and get 200 free spins to use on the Legacy of Dead. To claim your 200 free spins, use the promo link bitcasino.io slash scott. That's S-C-O-T-T. Log in or register an account, head over to the rewards section, and enable the bonus called Legacy of Dead 200FS. Wager 5-milli-Bitcoin on any slot game after that, and you'll get 200 spins on the house just for being you. BitCasino was ahead of the crypto game before the game got going. The original Bitcoin-led online gaming destination, they continue to set the standard for fun, fast, and fair gameplay. Deposit, wager, and withdraw on Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Tron, and more. All in real time, all the time, with BitCasino. Right. Moving along. Uh, Obviously, being accurate price starting at that point and you call yourself a freedom maximalist, which I, which I love. So how, how did you kind of come to that title? Why is freedom so important to you? Um, and how did you come
1: to that? Yeah, I, it's funny, um, it's a bit of an esoteric title. And you, you could also say it's libertarian, I think in a way, but the reason I chose not to go with that word is because it's so many, again, we're back to words, right? Being abused. So many of our words have been bastardized. Um, But what I would argue is this, uh, again, the the broken media of exchange, sort of, it's connected to our minds, so it it disturbs uh, the way we think and the definitions we assign to words. But uh, Even something like liberalism sounds like a political party today. People think liberal liberal versus conservative, but the traditional meaning of liberalism was, you know, low to no government, like minimized government. but that term has been co-opted by government to now represent the political party. So couldn't really go with libertarian. I mean, you can, I guess, to an extent, maybe certain people that understand what it means, understand what it means, but most people would think you're just pronouncing your political affiliation to call yourself um, a libertarian. So I went for something hopefully a little more clear. Uh, I think I thought of it myself, but there's no original ideas. So maybe I heard it somewhere. Um, and it just means to me that freedom is, is in being the state of being able to act um, in across the broadest set of possibilities possible um, in that the, the more optionality market participants have actually, the more wealth we create. So. Everything, and we, we take this for granted today, but everything, we enjoy this heritage from our ancestors that basically figured out an idea and said that, hey, instead of consuming all this capital, I'm just trying to make ends meet, you know, eating eating the seeds, so to speak. Why don't we start to, still there? Yeah, okay. Oh, sorry, look like internet latency. Um, why don't here, we yeah. start to sacrifice current consumption and save for the future. And this little idea, this is kind of the kernel of economics, right, it's delayed gratification. And the, the laissez-faire economists, as they called them a few hundred years ago, they were pushing this idea. It's like, we, we really need to accumulate capital. That's what will pull humanity out of privation. That's what will reduce poverty. That's what will allow us to satisfy more wants in less time. Uh, to eliminate you know, thousands of drudgeries through through technological innovation. This was a really hard fought idea. People resisted this at first. They, they thought innovation you know, was a job destroyer. It's scary when the factory comes in and all of a sudden you were you're, you're a custom shoemaker for three generations and now there's a shoe factory down the street. Um, this is a, it's existentially threatening. But in this discovery, it's like if you just let people compete freely that cost will then become lower as a result. Everyone is seeking to satisfy wants more cheaply and more efficiently. And every time someone has a breakthrough, which we call an innovation, you know, in, in either a tool or a, or a production methodology, they have an incentive to sell that breakthrough into the market such that everyone benefits. And that civilization ends up advancing in these layers of innovation and, and, and breakthrough. And that's what we inherit today, right? We are we are enjoying the lap of luxury like no one else in history, no other generation in history, because our ancestors spent lifetimes accumulating capital, accumulating capital, saving and investing, saving and investing. And now, so that it's all rooted in freedom, ultimately. It's like, just leave people to their own devices to trade freely, give them a means, which this is the purpose of the state, protect, the peace of the society so that people can trade private property freely. So, so we can think of the state or taxes we pay to the state as just network security, right? We're just securing the trade network. And then give them recourse to a means of nonviolent dispute resolution. So when people have inevitably have conflicts, you know, I thought you were gonna pay me this, you paid me that. Instead of, you know, going to a duel or raising their pitchforks against one another, give them recourse to the courts. Right? So they can go and settle disputes non-violently. And that by, by basically optimizing for trade and the division of labor, not only do we create a peaceful society, but we create economic abundance. Um, so that to me like, is core to the freedom maximus, maximalist philosophy. And then the flip side of it too is, I really believe that as we, we accumulate more capital, we become more wealthy we become more free as a result right all of a sudden you don't need to work 40 hours a week to pay the bills you need to work four or whatever wherever you are on the spectrum how do you spend those other hours right you start to ask these questions like well money is less of an object now for me how do i spend my time what do i want to do with my life every day and that's when i think it gets really interesting because people become entrepreneurial right it's like what is your best skill what is your gift How do you, you know, capitalize on that gift and sell it to the world? And that's where I think, you you know, it's almost intuitive that if you have a world where people are pursuing what is most meaningful to them, like what they're doing uh, agnostic to a monetary situation, like people just doing what they think is best for them, what they think they're best at, what they enjoy most, they're gonna pour most of their heart and soul into it. And I think you're gonna get the best inventions and breakthroughs and ideas from that process. So I see it as like, it just, freedom is the whole thing, as simple as it sounds.
0: Yeah, I've had that conversation with Jeff Booth, who obviously champions a lot of these uh, thoughts, but it's interesting because what you're talking about obviously is innovation and technology being deflationary, right? I mean, it brings prices down. It's the dead opposite of the system that we have now, which is forcing, you know, a devaluation of your currency, which causes you more time trying to gather that currency to pay for more things that you can't Mm -hmm. afford. So I think that idealistically, we can all understand the idea that it would be wonderful if there was all this innovation, prices of everything came down, robots were doing our jobs and we had free time to think and do what we want. But how do we get there? Because we're so far on the other side of the spectrum at this point and only flying down that track.
1: Right. That's a great point. Um, Again, back to bastardization of the language even those terms inflation deflation i would argue are euphemistic uh i i like to not that i i don't ever expect this to stick we're so entrenched with inflation deflation but it's monetary dilution is inflation monetary enrichment is deflation Right. right inflation sounds terrible by the way for people that don't understand economics or haven't thought more than one layer deep deflation sounds awful Right? It's just, what do you mean? You want the economy to inflate, not deflate. Right. Of course, we want inflation, and that is the exact ignorance that central bank propaganda preys on. Sure. Like we need a healthy amount of inflation to incite growth in the economy to get people spending, and it, it just the whole paradigm is completely broken. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether it's intentional or not. I think a Jeff Booth would argue that it's not intentional. Right. We were just creating a system that we thought was best at the time. And now that system has run into exponential technological deflation, right? We're just advancing so quickly in the sphere of productivity that prices are collapsing, but central banks because they're so, they've mired the world in debt in the largest debtor of which is the government, they need inflation to erode that real debt burden. So they will do whatever it takes to achieve positive price inflation. Um, In terms of how do we get there, I mean, it's, you can't, to try and fight free market dynamics is like trying to fight the tide, ultimately. I mean, you're fighting human nature, frankly. And I think we've just been kicking the can down the road for so long now. We've just been printing our way through every economic calamity, and this just further, diverges rich and poor. It further delays the inevitable correction back to reality and exacerbates it, right? This is the Talebian delayed volatility. You you can decrease short-run volatility, but it comes at the expense of increased and exacerbated long-run volatility. So we've had this central bank mandate of stable growth, whatever that means. Like what what is stable growth? (laughs) Growth is an unstable, unstable process by its nature. So they want to have stable growth where they maintain stable employment and stable prices across time. And it's just, (laughs) it's, it's amazing that it's worked this long, but I don't see how the next correction, especially with Bitcoin now at a trillion dollars, And Bitcoin, by the way, proving it's a true barometer to the failure of this system. My 30 second elevator pitch on Bitcoin is it's an insurance policy on central banking or on the legacy financial system. And the more dollars they print, the more valuable it becomes. So historically gold would have served that role to some extent, but central banks owning 20% of its supply systemically suppressing its price in the derivatives markets. It's not as truly a barometer, right? Unless and brought you know gold has its own issues. Like you can't settle with it in finality instantly. Right? So you can't force honesty on on um, in the same way that you can with Bitcoin. So I think we're gonna have a day of reckoning. I mean it's inevitable at some point that prices have to reset back into the realm of supply and demand at some point, uh, currencies, you know, and Mises would argue this, the longer you print the currency or engage in quantitative easing, one of two things is gonna happen. It's like, you're either going to have a, a big crash at some point back to the realm of reality where you've artificially pumped prices and they're gonna crash back down to reality, or you're gonna have the crack up boom which is the total implosion of the currency system right. hyperinflation hyperinflation and that tends to be that is the outcome we see time and time again with fiat currency is the largest debtor in the room has an incentive to print to erode that debt burden to externalize all of its cost onto the productive economy they will do that until the currency loses all meaning right we're talking about today the, the currency hit. Has lost a lot of its ability to communicate meaning. In this hyperinflation event, like you see in Venezuela, there's cash clogging the gutters. Cash means nothing. It can't be used to do anything. All trust breaks down, society collapses. You know, I don't I think it's inevitable we head that direction. I would like to say optimistically that Bitcoin gives us an alternative to bounce back quickly. And that we can all divest fiat and move into Bitcoin and sort of resume normal economic activity more smoothly than than other hyperinflations historically. Um, but it's a big unknown, you know. It's it doesn't end well. I guess. No, <laughs> it never it. has. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you called it a uh, you know a hedge against central banks. Uh, I had Mark Yusko on the show a long time ago, and he said it was a. Schmuck insurance is what they called it, uh, which Morgan is Spain. I thought that was a very uh, simple, simple uh, way to state the exact thing that you just said. So I, I guess the question then you said that there's two two routes: hyperinflation, which is the one that inevitably gets sort of chosen, and there's the other route. What is Bitcoin's role if it goes the other way?
1: So I guess the other way would be central banks suddenly decide hey we've been wrong about this thing forever we need to re the currency to gold um and move back onto a hard money standard uh first thing that would happen was gold would be repriced into the stratosphere um i don't even know the number probably north of twenty thousand dollars an ounce at least um i would think you would see a commensurate boom in bitcoin at that time because i would argue that most of the strong handed market actors in Bitcoin actually do view it now as an alternative to gold. Even if it's it's, it's a call option on a future gold, I guess you could say future gold standard. Um, and if you wanna go a little deeper on just the first principles of money, like why is Bitcoin superior to gold? Um, I've talked about this on a lot of shows, so I won't go too deep on it, but there's basically five properties of money that, that market actors choose for, that optimize they optimize for. And their divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity. Historically, monetary metals were the most divisible, durable, recognizable, and portable tool in the world for money. So we, we used gold and silver alongside one another. Of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce, meaning it had, uh, the highest stock to flow ratio, or so definitely the lowest inflation rate. So you could store your wealth in gold and it would, you know that it would be inflated um, as slow, as least quickly as possible. So it was right. the best store value, essentially. Um, Bitcoin looked at through the same lens perfects all those properties. It's just pure digital information. So, you know, portable at the speed of light, uh, stored in a distributed way so it's infinitely durable the example i like to make there is the bible which is just distributed information you can't really change it the book outlast empires um it's infinitely recognizable because you can audit the entire supply and you can run a full node verify all transactions yourself you are your own central bank effectively um and Portable, said, right, supply yeah. and, and then in, and it's infinite scarcity. Basically it's right. perfected fixed supply, 21 million. So I think that I actually look at the gold market cap. I would say that the monetary premium of gold is clearly part of that market cap is industrial use. Uh, right. gold around 10 trillion today, maybe 1 trillion is industrial use, 9 trillion is monetary premium. People holding that in expectation of future exchange uh, as money. I think that $9 trillion market cap to me is latent demand for Bitcoin. Uh, The market is gonna figure out that Bitcoin is superior to gold across all the the first principles of money. Uh, I think it takes a long time for the market to digest that information because the big big delta here is, gold's a 5,000-year-old tool. It's something so old, so ancient as money, we forgot why it's valuable. Everyone knows gold is valuable as money. How many can tell you the principles or properties of money? You know, one in a thousand, maybe. Um, Bitcoin's a 12 year old digital upstart competing with a 5,000 year old monetary technology. So I think it's gonna take a while for the market to digest this, that Bitcoin is superior. And even if Bitcoin is successful and superior to gold and, and surpasses in market cap, I would expect people to hold gold for a long, long time sure, as an alternative sure. store of value. Because it is a, such a such a deep Lindy effect or head start. So in that way, I think then gold is the same. The Bitcoin and gold both protect you in both inflationary crack-up booms, hyperinflationary situations. If you're holding physical gold, by the way, I don't believe paper gold is gonna protect you. I'm holding an ETF, right? <laughs> yeah, or holding physical Bitcoin, which is holding your own keys, I think you know, dangerous to have counterparty risk on that, and also protects you in the opposite situation where if governments say, "I'm going to repeg currency to gold," uh, we're going to have a massive deflationary shock. Gold will uh, explode, and I think Bitcoin would would boom alongside. So that's why, for me, it's it's almost the ultimate risk-adjusted bet in the world is to hold physical gold or physical Bitcoin at this at this point in the history of the fiat experiment because it's going one of two ways very sharply there's only one investment category which is hard money that will protect you on both sides of that
0: which has somewhat always been the case I, yeah. I, you know when when the when the, when the shit goes down hits the fan so to speak <laughs> um, right. Uh, yeah right There's there's plenty of historical precedent uh obviously for that. But physical gold, who can who can own physical gold?
1: Well, that's why I opt for Bitcoin personally, but you know, gotta throw one out to the gold bugs out there.
0: Yeah, you do. It's just you know, it's uh it's such a sort of uh, meme when you dig into what it would take. No no uh, pun intended dig in to what it would take to actually uh bury it in your backyard or put it into a bank in a safety de- deposit box and that bank could disappear. So it becomes effectively impossible to protect yourself with gold, even if you have. Yeah, I don't,
1: I don't know if you saw this. Um, this is a news article I saw a few weeks ago. A guy had been uh, detained at the airport because he was smuggling a bunch of gold in his ass. <laughs> and I just tweeted out, like, Bitcoin eliminates this pain in the ass. It's like you can just... <laughs>
0: pun intended, Um, I case, Um, So how do you equate Bitcoin to freedom? Um, Because obviously your freedom maximus you have a hardcore belief in Bitcoin. How does it give us freedom? How can it give the average person more freedom?
1: Yeah. So if we want to try and quantify this qualitative term of freedom, I would argue that you could say that the more optionality you have, the more options you have, the more free you are. Um, This is also closely connected to the concept of sovereignty, which is another term that I don't think, people are are talking about it more and more today, but historically wasn't uh, very looked at. And we could say that there's this great quote by, by Carl Schmitt, is that sovereign is he who decides the exception. So we're all you know, interoperating, playing these games with one another, but if there's any one player in that group that can create an exception to the rules, to the protocols through which we're interfacing, then that player has sovereignty over the others. He can bend the rules to favor himself and disfavor others. Um, and that is essentially what's happening with central banking. Central banking, is twisting the rules constantly every time they print money they're breaking contract law effectively right they, the, the government has a contract in place with you that which originally was redeemable for gold real money oh, later it became kind of this mired legal tender uh, enforced obligation type thing um but but the general contractual arrangement is that they're going to manage the money supply responsibly such that you can use it as a medium of exchange and store value over long periods of time. And that's clearly not what they're doing, right? right? They've totally violated supply and completely broken the store value uh, contractual arrangement. So in Bitcoin, another way to think about it is that it is, and by the way, when they print dollars, all they're doing is manipulating a centralized database at the Fed. There's an SQL database maintained by the Fed called the US dollar right? Yeah. They go in, make a new entry. They have allocated wealth from some to others, politically, arbitrarily, instantly. Right. So money is just a database, as right. Elon Musk tweeted out right. the other Print, day.
0: Printing is a bit of a misnomer, but yes. uh, it's a lot, lot easier to, to imagine for people. That's right.
1: Yeah. Um, so we have this manipulable database inside the Fed, closed source technology called the dollar. Bitcoin is the first un- the manipulation-proof database in the history of the world. It is it is a the first and only form of global consensus. It's indisputable truth, right? Whatever happened on that blockchain, you could argue about it metaphysically, maybe that it's not true or whatever. But it, for all all pragmatic purposes in the world, it is truth. You cannot argue with it once it's you know en- enough. Confirmations deep, uh, it is probabilistically approaches infinity, essentially. So, since there are no exceptions on the Bitcoin database, right? So, again, sovereignty decides the exception. The Fed is deciding the exceptions to the US dollar database. No one can decide exceptions in the Bitcoin database. What it does is it maximizes the sovereignty of market participants. So, every individual now has these sound and unbreakable rules by which to plan their economic affairs, to calculate, and to govern their, their lives. Um, and that's the big breakthrough here, is that it's, it's a breakthrough in sovereignty. That's It's it's taken sovereignty away from these large, anachronistic institutions that were necessary in the 20th century, perhaps, to, to coordinate human action at scale. But we can now do these things with software. Um, And in terms of to get into like freedom, what what that means is if you're sovereign, you have the authority to take action as you see fit. So you could look at the field of options and say, hey, I'm gonna do A, B and C. And there's no one or there's there's no authority that stands between you and that course of action effectively. Um, So Bitcoin is freedom in a way that we we say, first of all, money, it's an instrument of pure freedom or pure optionality in the marketplace, right? That's, that's by definition, what it is. It can be used to attain anything in the marketplace, goods, services, knowledge. Bitcoin is inviolable money that maximizes the sovereignty of its individual holder. Um, And it's, and the last piece to that, I guess, is People are like, okay, that all sounds good, but the government's just gonna shut it down or they're just gonna executive order 6102 your ass and just come take it. In terms of confiscation resistance, there has never been a property right more resistant to forced seizure than Bitcoin. It is just pure information. So it can be custodied in You know, your imagination is the limit basically. Any information bearing medium in the world can be used to custody Bitcoin. Uh, people have encrypted it into public articles, and like say the New York Times, that article gets published once. It's distributed information. The article's out there for everyone to see, but only you have the key to decrypt the private key from that article. Um, you can, you know, multi-signature is a big one. You can chop it into a lot of pieces, distribute it geographically. Uh, you can get very creative with how you custody this asset. So. I think on all sides, you know, Bitcoin it maximizes freedom across time to hold a guaranteed fraction of the total money supply. Like if you hold a thousand of twenty-one million Bitcoin, that's the only asset in the world you can say that I hold a thousand of twenty-one million forever. You can't even say that about gold. Uh, Maximizes your freedom for moving it because it's just information. Maximizes your freedom for custodying it because it's just information. Um, And it's this. If it works out right it's a call option then on all the money in the world it's a call option on all capital and all future human product productivity so it is the most in terms of gaining freedom we need asymmetric bets asymmetric investments i would say at this point in bitcoin's existence it's still the most asymmetric investment opportunity in the world so It's a lot to take in. And that's why this is the Bitcoin rabbit hole. You can think about this thing nonstop for years. You're still not going to get to the bottom of it, um, but it's, it's equally exciting. It's interesting. So everything you just, uh,
0: described is so compelling to someone who's been down the rabbit hole. But when you try to explain that to the average person, they find it terrifying because they trust their bank. They trust yeah. their bank or a centralized authority or whoever it is more than they trust themselves, especially for custody. So I think it's funny. We've seen be your own bank on the side of buses in Hong Kong as a pitch for for Bitcoin. But I think that's actually sort of terrifying for your average person. I don't want to be my own bank. What if I lose it? What if I don't understand it? Yeah. yeah. So, is that a barrier to mainstream adoption? Does Because of that, does it remain something for the privileged few who study it and understand it and are willing to take that risk? Or is there some happy medium in the future where we find mainstream adoption, it becomes accessible, but still safe?
1: Yeah, so the original purpose of banking, as we said earlier, was to custody money for monetary metals, right? So um, in terms of those properties of money, metals and gold specifically really lacked portability. They're very heavy, they're hard, expensive to move across space, you know, you have to secure them. Um, That was the original economic purpose of a bank is to centralize the custody of the metal, issue warehouse receipts that people can then transact with and use to redeem, they can redeem that paper for real money whenever they want, Uh, and this actually let you know, gold scale, basically. And by the way, when this happened, as a quick aside, the reason silver worked alongside gold is because silver had greater portability. So gold would be used for large settlements, typically. Silver was more used more commonly for day-to-day transactions. Once we abstracted gold into paper currencies, silver was largely demonetized because that portability function had been gathered under a gold standard. You didn't really need physical silver as much. Um, so original purpose of the bank was custodian to money. So they're issuing a bank note that's redeemable for money. And they would also do maturity matching. So the people that would lock up their monetary deposits for an amount of time, you know, like your, your traditional CD, um, the bank would then go out entrepreneurs would come to the bank actually to borrow money to to fund their ventures and the banks would match maturity on these time deposits with entrepreneurial borrowing so they are performing a a risk matching function that they would generate revenue from so they earn revenue from custody and earn revenue from risk matching i think and clearly the world of banking today has gotten way past that like we don't need to go into all the things that banks do today that that aren't that, but that's all they were originally intended to do on the free market. Um, I think those two functions are perfectly, uh, banks are perfectly capable of continuing to satisfy those functions on a Bitcoin-denominated world. People should be able to custody their Bitcoin with their bank. Um, I think the custody model will change, by the way, because again, we have this multi-signature option. Why would you just trust a single bank, a single institution, when you could instead chop that key into three pieces and trust two out of three or three out of five or pick your number? Um, So in terms of mitigating counterparty risk, uh, there's no better option in the world of Bitcoin or you can't chop your gold into pieces and custody it with different banks. You're you're then just exposed to different centralized custody models where Bitcoin enables this decentralized custody model.
0: It's really interesting.
1: Mm. And then I think too that, uh, you know, there's there's going to come a point because Bitcoin is this like pristine collateral um, that you can, you know, it's unencumbered, it's liquid 24 by seven. I think it will become the new foundation to a a parallel financial system. We could say like a digital non-state global financial system. And in that world, people will be time locking their Bitcoin, I don't know, for a year. Maybe they're locking it up in lightning channels. Maybe they're locking it up with a bank or with banks in this um, multi-signature custody model. And then those banks, perhaps they'll start to perform their original function which was to match uh, savings with, with borrowers Basically, so people can go out and lend that Bitcoin at a market rate. Um, another thing that I think will happen, because this this is an interesting point that people brought up, is that, well, if Bitcoin eats all the money, then how are you going to borrow against your Bitcoin? Like, what, there won't be a fiat to borrow in. So, if there's no US dollar, yeah. what happens? So, and there's a great piece written by Lewis over at Mimesis Capital on this. Uh, he focused on residential real estate, but effectively, you'll borrow the goods and services. You'll post your Bitcoin as collateral, say, to, to borrow a home. And then you'll that collateral, you can either pay rent or the lease, whatever you want to call it, to the, the property owner. They're holding the Bitcoin as collateral. If the house ever declines in price, then they can uh, liquidate you. Um, or you have a call option, you have the ability, it's like a rent to own almost. You've posted Bitcoin as a collateral, you're getting service from the home or whatever asset it is. And then if you decide you wanna keep it and take ownership of it, you can actually transact the Bitcoin completely to take take title of the asset. So banks could be useful in that transaction as well, that they're actually facilitating flows between buyers and sellers. Um, so I think, I don't think banking goes away. I think we just move, like Bitcoin is, what's crazy about it, and it's a bit of a paradox is that it's imposing free market principles on everything and everyone. It's forcing us all to be more honest in our dealings. Um, and another just example of this came to mind is like the Grayscale Investment Trust. 2% management fee and large premium, right? Well, NIDIG just announced they're filing for an ETF. It's going to be a 50 basis points management fee, trades at no premium, settles in Bitcoin. So it's like the, the, I saw this as like the ethos or the principles of Bitcoin sort of imposing themselves into the financial system. It's actually causing market actors at that level to, be, to deal more honestly with their consumers. So yeah, just, just really interesting to, to think of it that way.
0: I had never considered uh, multi sig beyond the three of five devices, right? Which mm-hmm. is what I mean. I personally use multi sig to custody my own my own Bitcoin, but I never thought of it as three out of five institutions. It's yeah. really, a, really an interesting way to, to consider it because it eliminates the county party risk of trusting a single bank. That's right. Um, so, just really, really interesting. And you also talk about Bitcoin being pristine collateral. We see that the OCC is saying that banks can now custody Bitcoin in theory. So we know that they're going to start custodying it and start lending against it. I wonder when that will happen. I saw Michael Saylor recently joke that he can you know, use his yacht as collateral, but it could be floating on the other side of the planet. <laughs>
1: yeah. You
0: know, c- come get it.
1: Right. Yeah, <laughs> if, if I
0: default it. on my loan. Uh, Uh, But do you see a world where the actual banks start to loan against Bitcoin? I mean, it sounds like you do. And that sounds like a risk. It sounds like putting our beloved asset into a system that we don't believe in.
1: That's right. Um, Definitely. I mean, it necessitates a Bitcoin holder to give up their keys to a lender uh, so that the lender has control over the collateral. Um, There are interesting approaches to this being done again involving multi-sig uh company like unchained capital they have mm, multi-sig product and they have multi-sig loan products lending yep yeah so you can you're giving up control uh and that you know they do what like a two or three multi-sig you hold one key they'll hold one key neutral third party holds the third key so the advantage there is you get to see First of all, you have a contractual arrangement between three parties that they can't take custody of the second key from the neutral third party unless certain contractual um, uh, obligations or obligations are met. Uh, So there's a little bit more of assurance there, but they also, because because no one can move the Bitcoin, you get to actually see the Bitcoin sit in the vault and not move. You know, there's no rehypothecation or any other uh, shenanigans going on with your Bitcoin. So I think the market will move that direction. Um, this this asset just gives it's gives us the ability to have cryptographic certainty of reserves. Uh, it gives it enables really high degrees of transparency. Right, you can prove reserves by signing a message or whatever. So I think these features of Bitcoin will permeate uh, the institutional infrastructure, if you will, like market actors will demand that from their providers, If providers don't don't do it, you know, because it's a freely competitive market, someone else will. And because Bitcoin can be moved instantly anywhere in the world, it's very easy to switch custodians or switch banks. So I think this will just cause a, you know, again, in the free market, the sovereignty of the consumer is paramount. So it's whatever the people want is what tends to happen. So I think people are gonna naturally desire these features that maximize their security, minimize their risk and maximize their, their return on the asset as well if they get into lending and such.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I love the idea of the cross-section between multi-sig and lending so that at least you have a bit of security for that. So I can't mm-hmm. believe it. I'm looking it up and I see that we're kind of up against it and out of time. So I feel like I could have this conversation for five hours. So we're gonna have to do like a part two, three, four, and five down the road if you're up for it. But where, yeah. where can people follow you and, uh, and obviously check out uh, What Is Money,
1: your show? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. My last name is Breedlove. So my Twitter handle is at BreedLove22, that's breedlove 22 Uh On my Twitter bio, I've got links to the What Is Money Show YouTube channel, the What Is Money Show podcast, uh, which is the whatismoneypodcast.com, if you prefer to go that route. And I've also got links to my Medium page where I post most of my writing that got me started into all of this uh, new digital media landscape. And yeah, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. My DMs are open. I I really consider this to be my life's work. I think Bitcoin is the most important innovation we've seen in our lifetimes. Uh, I think it's a bigger deal than the internet. And um, I spend a lot of time thinking, talking, and writing about it. So happy to engage.
0: Yeah, I suggest we talk about going down rabbit holes here all the time. I've been down the rabbit hole of your medium and it's amazing. So I, I suggest <laughs> very, very highly that everybody does that and watch the show. So, man, thank you so much for taking your time. And I really mean it that I would love to love to have you back and continue this conversation.
1: Yeah, Scott, this was great. happy to do it. Uh, thanks thank again, Brad. let